0: I began suspecting that I was encountering a pretty terrifying new side effect. Tardive dyskinesia. You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. As always, thank you for joining me. I'm just hanging out. It's a Sunday morning. I was sitting down to record and there was a knock on my door. My neighbor, who lives next door, is so sweet. She's this little old lady and she just brought me some Korean noodles. Unexpected, out of the blue, just a nice gesture from a neighbor. So that's a nice little piece of positivity that's going on already. I hope you all are having a positive and happy day wherever you're at. It's been a couple of weeks since the last installment to this podcast. I've been so deep in the Twitter space universe that I haven't had much time to spend on the actual podcast itself. Twitter spaces, which are public audio chat rooms, are one of the primary ways I promote this show and connect with listeners and even potential future guests. I was hosting Twitter spaces on the Bipolar Recorder Twitter account nearly every day for the last three weeks, occasionally even multiple times a day. During this period, I spoke with hundreds of people about all things mental health related. The spaces I host are loosely structured and conversational, so the chats tend to go in all sorts of unique and interesting directions. Check out podcast number 24, Welcome to the Mental Health Chill Zone, if you'd like to hear a recorded Twitter space I hosted last summer. If you're curious about the vibe, that's a good way to find out. But there does get to be a point where I burn myself out and need to focus on other endeavors as a mental palate cleanser. Do you know that scene in the graphic novel or the film adaptation of Watchmen by Alan Moore? There's a character named Rorschach, and he tells a dark joke about the clown Poliachi. The great clown, Pagliacci, is in town. Go see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears. But doctor, he says, I am Pagliacci. You know, everyone goes to see this clown and the clown cheers them up, but in fact, the clown is more depressed than anyone. That's how I feel sometimes. after hosting extensive series of twitter spaces i mean it it is kind of wild because i host these twitter spaces and i kind of bring people together to facilitate these conversations and occasionally i'm going through shit too and uh when i talk about it you know uh people express concern and provide support of course but i can't just openly air all of my baggage on those Twitter spaces because they're not really just about me, they're about the community, and I don't want to burden people with my own bullshit all the time. Anyhow, I've mentioned before that up until a couple of months ago, when I started being more public about my recent personal experiences with mental illness... Some people in the Twitter community and beyond began looking up to me as some sort of role model or stable influence, and this really created some dissonance for me. I'm not a role model, yet some people see it or perhaps saw it that way. For today's installment, I originally had a lengthy script about inpatient hospitalization and the intersection of mental health treatment with law enforcement. I was going to do that today, but damn, it is just too dark and too heavy for me to focus on right now, given how unstable my moods have been over the last few months. I'm sure I'll eventually record that script and release it as an installment to Bipolar Recorder. I mean, I did spend several days working on it. It was a big undertaking. But for now, I've decided to give you all an update on where I'm currently at. I wanted to share some of the self-care strategies I've been using and just kind of talk about where my head's at right now. There have been some pretty major developments since I shared about my holiday crisis and whack drug relapse, which was installment 29. I first shared that story back in early December. Allow me to continue pulling back the curtain just a little bit, because shit has been kind of wild, and I would love to share it with you. I had a lot of thinking to do after my crisis event a couple months back. In case you're not caught up on the show, the short version of the story is that I overdosed on a large amount of prescription medications. Although the situation was life-threatening and messed up, after regaining consciousness, I managed to white-knuckle it through the overdose and avoid landing in a hospital. The experience was really scary and intense and it was a massive wake-up call that the major depressive episode I had experienced from about August up until early January had gotten out of hand. When I had that crisis event, it totally threw me off and I still wasn't even out of the depression woods. So the crisis happened in mid to late November And the major depressive episode continued after that for about six to eight more weeks. I'm still kind of not totally out of the woods yet, even at the time of this recording. And this was really, really difficult to work through. A couple of times in this podcast, I had mentioned back in the episodes that were recorded in like November and December, there were a couple of times when I was speaking with guests and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've been having this major depression and I feel like I'm kind of coming out of it. I said that a couple of times before, like I thought I was coming out of the depression But it was really just a situation where I would have like two or three good days in a row and I would start feeling more confident and encouraged. And then it was like the floor would fall out beneath me and I was back to having incredibly bad insomnia and suicidal ideation and really intense stuff of that nature. As I continue to process that crisis event, I've been spending a lot of time and money speaking with my therapist about how and why that situation unfolded. In installment 29, I spoke a lot about the importance of working through trauma and evaluating how past traumatic experiences continue to impact your life. And lately, that work, for me, has been in overdrive. I've been doing a lot of thinking about negative life experiences, and while it's important to work through these things, it's still emotionally taxing. One of the main self-care and personal development strategies I've re-adopted after the crisis is an old classic, journaling. I've been journaling for a bit every day over the last couple of months, analyzing my thoughts and moods in detail, and then reporting my findings back to my therapist. Writing is something that comes very naturally to me, so this strategy has been really effective so far. Sometimes during sessions, I'll even read directly from my journal to succinctly give my therapist an update on what's going on and where everything's at. Writing about my life in more detail and with more self-discipline than I'd been accustomed to over the preceding year allows me to sit with the traumatic memories and really start parsing them out. This is really intense work, and it gets very emotional and heavy, which is why I'm actively staying in touch with my therapist to help me process all of these thoughts as I come across them. Another major thing that's been going on is that after the crisis, my psychiatrist increased the dosage of the antipsychotic medication I take. It's a medication called Vralar. For a few weeks, it felt like a good change. My sleep started improving, and I felt a lot more grounded throughout the day. But then, I began suspecting that I was encountering a pretty terrifying new side effect. Tardive dyskinesia. Tardive dyskinesia, often abbreviated as TD, put very simply is a neurological condition where someone begins experiencing involuntary muscle movements in their mouth, face, and even hands. It can make your tongue flick around in your mouth incessantly. It can make you grimace for no reason. It can give you hand tremors. It's a really serious thing to deal with and is a side effect of antipsychotic medication for some people. As you know from listening to this show, I do a lot of public speaking. A condition that impacts my ability to speak and present myself is really detrimental. Furthermore, as a musician and writer, fine motor control in my fingers is incredibly important. How can I play a guitar chord or type on a laptop if my hands are shaking uncontrollably? About six weeks ago, when I realized that I was likely experiencing symptoms of TD, I reached out to my psychiatrist. I explained what was happening and asked what his recommendation was. My psychiatrist shared my concerns and referred me to a neurologist to establish a formal diagnosis. But there was a problem. It turns out that the earliest appointment to meet with a neurologist in my town isn't until late April, three months from now. So I told my psychiatrist that in the meantime, I was not comfortable continuing to take antipsychotic meds. Note that I understand that antipsychotic medication is important for people with my flavor of bipolar. It's called bipolar type 1 with psychotic features. But I am not ready to let neurological side effects run rampant within my body. My psychiatrist initially established a fallback plan. He said we could discontinue the antipsychotic medication, but add additional mood stabilizers to help compensate. I was consoled by this alternate path forward, so as my TD symptoms continued to worsen and became more alarming, I contacted my psychiatrist again to let him know it was time to switch to the fallback plan. I told him the symptoms were worsening, and again, that I was uncomfortable continuing to take a high dose of Vralar. But he must have had second thoughts for some reason, because he shot me an email saying that he wanted to meet with me this week. That's right, the week of this recording, before agreeing that it was a good idea for me to discontinue my meds. If you've been keeping track, you'll have noticed that I had been doing my best to be patient with my psychiatrist for about six weeks as these strange and disturbing involuntary facial movements continued. It was this bad. Check this out. So one afternoon, I was having a session with my therapist, and she stopped me at one point. She asked, what's going on with your face? She was concerned. I said, I don't know. I've been doing it all day and I can't help it. She said that the facial movements were so unusual for me that she was having difficulty reading my expressions and body language. I felt like a freak. I'd have been following my psychiatrist's advice up until then. I didn't want to make any decisions impulsively, and I was very aware that discontinuing such an important medication could have catastrophic outcomes, such as a full-blown episode of psychotic mania. I just want to flush all these dumb pills down the toilet, I told my therapist. She responded, that sounds impulsive. Why don't you try to get a few nights of decent sleep before making any major decisions? It was good advice, and I took it. My insomnia has been much less severe lately. I do still have a couple of nights here and there where I don't sleep, but it's not like I'm consistently averaging below 3 hours a night anymore. My follow-up appointment with my psychiatrist was supposed to be this past Friday. That was the appointment where we were going to formally discuss the medication decrease and other modifications to the cocktail of pharmaceutical drugs that I take. All week, I'd been looking forward to that appointment. It was very important that we had a detailed conversation about the path forward. So imagine my shock early Thursday morning when I got a surprise call from my psychiatrist's office. It was one of his assistants. She sounded really flustered as she explained that my psychiatrist, who was a super old dude, probably in his 70s or early 80s if I had to guess, the assistant explained that he had experienced a major medical emergency. I knew that he'd had some sort of surgery coming up because he offhandedly mentioned it during a previous appointment. Apparently, there had been some sort of complication during the operation. His assistant said we had to cancel the appointment and that my psychiatrist would likely be out of the office for at least the next few weeks and sadly may actually be so unwell that he might not be able to return to the practice at all. I stupidly asked, uh, does it sound like he's gonna be good? No. No. The assistant flatly responded, It's really bad. I was surprised at the level of detail they'd given me about my psychiatrist's personal health situation. But I was glad that they gave me this context. I mean, I feel bad for him. He's actually been a really good doctor over the last year and a half that I've worked with him. He's very knowledgeable and very respectful. It'll suck if he dies or decides to retire as a result of this emergency. The assistant asked if I'd like for her to schedule an appointment with one of my psychiatrist's colleagues so that I could meet with them in the meantime. But I was concerned about speaking to a brand new doctor who had never worked with me before especially during such a pivotal time in my treatment regimen. I didn't want to explain my circumstances to a new doctor who would potentially begin meddling further with my medications or not believe me when I told them about the severe side effects I'd been experiencing. I decided that I'd hope for the best and call his office back in a couple of weeks to schedule a follow-up appointment once he hopefully recovers from his health issues. I already have enough meds on hand to last the next couple of months without needing any refills. Long story short, I'm now doing my own unsupervised taper off of Vralar. This is obviously not an optimal strategy, and I'm not recommending this to others. I was really hoping I could consult with my proper psychiatrist before doing such a thing, but the TD has just been so sketchy to me that I don't feel comfortable continuing to take this medicine. I discussed this situation and decision with many of my bipolar friends, none of whom are medical experts. And I got mixed reactions from them. Some people were encouraging it, others said it was too risky of a judgment call. This situation could completely backfire in a really dangerous way, so I'm trying to exercise extreme caution and do as much self-care work as I can while continuing to take my other medications as prescribed. I'm also going to be seeing my therapist more regularly over the next few weeks so I can get her professional perspective on my symptoms, or hopefully, lack thereof. My biggest fear is experiencing a severe episode of psychotic mania and landing in an involuntary psych hold again. This happened to me in May of 2015 and was a really traumatizing and fucked up experience that I'll never forget. The hospitalization didn't help my situation at all. After I got out, my mania crashed into a really severe major depressive episode and I struggled miserably for months afterward. Let me talk a little bit about the psychosis I've historically experienced. It gets really scary. I've had two significant experiences with psychosis so far. The first was the manic one in 2015 that I just mentioned. During that episode, I began becoming extremely paranoid and fell into a delusion wherein I thought I was being gang-stalked by law enforcement. I eventually had very elaborate hallucinations as well. I'd see shadowy figures walking through my house, and I'd overhear detailed conversations between people who weren't really there. The delusions and hallucinations escalated over a period of a couple of months, They didn't start to go away until after I was thrown in the psych ward, and they placed me on a very high dose of antipsychotic drugs. So basically, after I got out of the psych ward, I still felt residual psychosis, like I still felt very paranoid and stuff, but the hallucinations and delusions weren't nearly as severe However, I still experienced the major depression, so it was like, yeah, I went to the hospital, the psychotic symptoms sort of went away, but the depression came back full force, just brutal, awful depression. The second psychotic experience I had was during a major depressive episode in late 2017. That time, I experienced a delusion that I had been infected by a stomach parasite that was causing me to rapidly lose weight. Yeah, this one was really freaky. In reality, and with the benefit of hindsight, the reason I was losing so much weight was because I had actually restricted my diet to foods I thought the parasite wouldn't want. Stuff like white rice and thin slices of turkey... I was eating maybe 400 calories a day and literally starving myself. I was so convinced that I had some sort of gastrointestinal parasitic infection that I eventually even got a colonoscopy. And I was like 24 years old at the time. This was just the level that I felt I needed to take things to because the delusions really seemed that realistic. After the colonoscopy came back completely clear, I realized that whatever I was experiencing was psychosomatic, meaning that my own mind was impacting my physical health. I slowly began reintroducing substantial meals into my daily routine, and over a period of a few weeks, I began to come out of the depressive episode and feel my delusions eventually fade away. Needless to say, psychosis is really fucked up and scary. I'm sure that if you've been following this show regularly, you already know this. Those breaks from reality that manifest in the form of delusions and hallucinations don't always require hospitalization, but that's certainly a very real potential outcome from all of this. I'm not sure what I'll do if I ever wind up in a psych ward again. I keep playing out the scenario in my head. I'm minding my own business at my house one evening when suddenly police or crisis intervention workers show up at my front porch demanding that I answer the door. No matter what I say to them or how normal I act, in the scenario that plays out in my mind's eye, I get violently detained and forced into a psychiatric hospital. It wouldn't be my first rodeo, but that's really not a rodeo I ever want to go back to. Only time will tell how all of this works out. Serious mental illness is no joke. It can have life-threatening outcomes such as the prescription drug overdose I experienced a couple months back. I guess part of the reason I wanted to record all of this and share it with you is because I want to have some sort of formal marker to reference as I continue blazing forward. But how am I actually doing right now, like aside from the tardive dyskinesia? Well things overall have been improving lately. I stopped experiencing suicidal ideation a few weeks ago, and I've been feeling more clear-headed and grounded ever since. Maybe this is because of the med changes, my natural brain functions, or working more closely with my therapist. It's difficult to whittle down, and it's most likely a combination of all three of those factors. Journaling, again, as a self-care strategy has been great, and I've even dug into my personal archives and found some journals that I'd written years ago. Reading back through my journals has been very helpful for me. Reviewing them was really important because it actually helped me pinpoint various major depressive episodes I've had over the last few years. As it turns out, historically, my truly, truly major depressive episodes last for about four to six months and occur about once every two years. Four to six months of depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. That's not easy. Sometimes I'm like, couldn't I get some mania in here for a change? And that's a very common sentiment that bipolar people have when they're experiencing prolonged episodes of depression. Why can't I just switch back to the elevated moods, we think to ourselves. The elevated hypomanic or manic moods seem so much more tantalizing when you've been locked into a prolonged state of depression. It's almost like some of us have a tendency to romanticize the mania, those feelings of euphoria, the initial productivity, the creative and intellectual insights. But when I look objectively at it, of course mania is just as terrible as depression. It's dangerous, but in different ways. And in my experience, mania is more likely to land me in the hospital than depression. I've only had one full-bore manic episode in my life the one that escalated from about January until May of 2015. It was so intense and fucked up that it nearly destroyed my life. If it wasn't for my family's support after I was released from the hospital, I would have been homeless. On a more positive note, I've been doing a really good job of staying on the straight and narrow ever since my crisis event. I've cut way back on my marijuana use, with the plan to completely discontinue it soon, and I've completely avoided all other substances. In fact, just a couple of days ago, I reached the seven-year mark in my abstinence from alcohol. Even throughout the substance abuse problems I experienced over the autumn months, I never went back to drinking, and I'm doing my best to keep it that way. It hasn't been easy, though, My drug and alcohol cravings have been pretty bad lately. So, I've been talking to people in my sober network, my harm reduction network, just kind of venting to them and getting some feedback and support. One of the things that some guys who have been in recovery for like decades have told me is you always just gotta remind yourself be mindful, stay grounded. And take it a day at a time. You know, seven years ago, I never would have thought I would be able to stay away from booze for this long. But taking it a day at a time, setting realistic goals, and really, really exercising self-discipline, you know, it's helped. It makes it achievable to maintain your sobriety. Of course, like I've been saying, you know, it's not easy. It's not always something that comes naturally, it's something you've got to work on. And frankly, I think that a really big part of the reason, and I've said this before, but a big part of the reason I relapsed and overdosed a couple of months ago was because I had just stopped putting a lot of conscious effort and dedication into my sobriety. It was kind of like Something that had just become a dull pattern rather than an active lifestyle change. And I kind of just got lazy and I kind of forgot, you know, hey, you got to remind yourself every day that there's a reason why you personally do not fuck with alcohol. You don't fuck with benzos. You don't fuck with X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? So that's where I'm at there. Another part of what's been helping me stay away from all of that bad shit, all of those gnarly substances, is that I've been able to more actively incorporate healthy lifestyle changes now that my major depression seems to finally be lifting. On average, I'm sleeping much better these days, getting around six to seven hours of sleep a night instead of zero to three. I'm also eating much better, cooking full meals at home instead of primarily relying on smoothies to cheat my way through each day. In addition to that, I've started going for long walks every day. One of my most major goals, and this is a long term one but it's something I'm working towards slowly but surely, It's to get back in really good physical condition. Back in 2020, prior to some issues with medication side effects and hyperthyroidism, I was incredibly fit. Throughout the COVID lockdowns and the other issues I just mentioned, I lost the drive to work out religiously, and I really want to get back to the point where I can easily run 30-40 to miles a week and feel physically stronger. Look, I don't know what the future holds. I hope it goes well and doesn't get too hardcore, especially since all the shit I went through last year. I don't know if I can handle a back-to-back depressive year like that. But there is the grim reality that I am now at greater risk of psychosis and mania than I was before, and that I'll need to conduct myself responsibly and intelligently if I want to stay safe. The drug overdose was a major wake up call for me. I don't need any other major wake up calls right now. Mm-hmm. installment of Bipolar Recorder and letting me share a bit about myself. I hope this gave you some ideas for helpful self-care strategies and even shed some light on where my head's at these days. I'm going to continue putting out new content as often as I can. Bipolar Recorder's primary social media presence is on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder. I'm also on Twitter at HHKeegan. Lately, I've been branching out into Instagram and even Mastodon so people can find more content on those avenues as well. All social media presences to date are simply at Bipolar Recorder. No spaces, no hyphens, just Bipolar Recorder. My name's Hunter Keegan. Thanks again for joining me. Have a safe day, evening, or night, wherever you are. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting bipolarrecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.